0: A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show.
1: If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Okay, so Brown versus Board of Education, huge Supreme Court case, 1954, desegregates public schools in America, and Brown is Oliver L. Brown, a welder for the railroads and assistant pastor. There's actually uh, 13 parents who brought the lawsuit, but he's the only one whose name is on it, not because he's first alphabetically. People think maybe the lawyers picked him because he's the only dad on the list. All the other parents are moms. 1973, Roe versus Wade. Roe is Jane Roe, real name Norman McCorvey, working as a carnival barker, gets pregnant. She's already had two babies, girls, who other people were raising. She didn't want to go through that a third time. At a bar one night, someone tells her that there's this thing called an abortion. Norman tries to get one, but can't. It's illegal and finally signs up as the plaintiff for the lawsuit, she says, because it's the only way she can find to get the abortion she wants. This year, the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, the plaintiff is an abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi, the Jackson Women's Health Organization. On the day the clinic lost and Roe was overturned, that's where we wanted to be, with the people whose case was making history on the day history was made. For over a decade, the clinic has been the only abortion clinic in Mississippi. Many of their clients drive from hours away. Small building, mint green roof. Unmissable, super bright pink exterior. Like the building is saying, yeah, we're here. Deal with it. Recently, uh, they haven't a lot of press inside to record, but we teamed up with a filmmaker, Macy Crow, who filmed in the clinic starting in 2012 for a great and very nuanced movie that she made about abortion in Mississippi and is back there now shooting another film, She was the only journalist who was allowed to be there that day. And she brought us along to witness and record these moments that no one else has seen or reported on till now. What we've made of all this and what we have for you today is a special episode of our show. It is uh, This American Life, by the way, from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Ira Glass. And what we're going to do is we're going to start at the Mississippi Clinic. That's basically the crash site for this massive cultural political boulder that just landed in all of our lives with the Supreme Court decision. And then uh, after that, we're gonna head out from the clinic, move up into Illinois, and then further out to Missouri and Texas, places and people who were hit by the shockwave of that impact in various ways. Stay with us.
2: I'm Macy Crow. This is Act One, the pink house at the center of the world. The people who work in the Pink House at the corner of Fondren and State Street have known for a while history was coming for them. They just didn't know the exact date or what they'd do in the clinic on the day it happened. Would they immediately have to cancel patients? What would they say to people? Where would they go? We begin this story a couple days before the Supreme Court decision, on a Wednesday night. Because their days are so busy and full, This was the first time they sat down to really discuss what to do as a group if Roe were overturned. The director of the clinic, Shannon Brewer, gathered her staff in the waiting room at the end of the workday, after patients had gone home. This kind of meeting, with everybody together, they're not all that common at the clinic. Everybody's just too busy. So it felt serious. Y'all
3: gonna need to know what's gonna be probably going on within the next week. The decision can come down either Thursday, Friday, or Monday. I think they're not going to do it to
2: Monday, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Shannon has worked at the Jackson Clinic for more than two decades. She started out at the bottom, a scrub tech, sterilizing instruments. She needed a job. She had six kids, all little. And she came to the field kind of randomly. Her aunt worked at the clinic and brought her in. Shannon was 29 back then. Now she's 50 and the leader.
3: We already know this, that it's going to be crazy. We're going to, I got to talk to the, the uh, we're having a meeting with the attorneys tomorrow as far as what is to be done once the decision comes down, because it's been conflicting things that's been said as far as what the next step is.
2: There's just a small staff at the clinic, very family like, very interconnected. Shannon's sister works here. Shannon's become kind of known nationally for keeping this place open. Like last year, she went to the White House to meet with Vice President Kamala Harris. Pretty much ever since she started, and even before she started, people have been trying to shut the Pink House down. They've tried everything. The state has buried them in regulations, wrestled them in David and Goliath-sized court cases. No matter what was thrown at the Pink House, and that's what everybody calls it, it was unshuttable. It would not stop. Just like Shannon Brewer.
3: Okay, one group there, one group there. Six surgicals, six surgicals, Mm.
2: She's rarely fazed by anything, talks to herself while she works. I've seen her be really kind to patients, while she's also explaining the harsh reality that they're too far along to get an abortion in Mississippi and that they'll have to go to another state. Her office is set up for warm, fuzzy vibes, inspirational sayings up everywhere. Things like, sometimes life's about risking it all for a dream nobody can see but you. There's also a big video monitor with feeds from the security cameras all over the building. I've never been in her office when her eyes aren't darting to the screen every few seconds. And what about the sign on your desk?
3: Oh, don't play with me. (laughs) That's just the truth. I'm a fucking professional. What are you talking about? That is what it (laughs) says.
4: What I love about that is that it faces inward.
2: That's my producer, Miki.
4: I, know
3: I don't want everybody to see it because I don't want to be just, oh my God, it's a little too ghetto. But yeah, I like it so
4: much. I'm a fucking professional. How awesome would it be It's like your press conference that you give whenever the yeah. Supreme Court decision is, you just have this right and I, here. I may just do that.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, I, what can it hurt at that point? I, that's a good idea. I think I may. Yeah. <laughs> when they say, well, what would you like to say? I would say some things, but I'm a fucking professional. <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> so I won't. <laughs> But yeah, I think I may turn it around then. It'll be the time to turn it around.
2: These days, even with the entire world looking at her, Shannon was coping okay. She had this moment during the oral arguments of the Supreme Court case. She got to D.C. and all she saw were anti-abortion activists and protesters and politicians everywhere cheering on the other side. Very few people showed up for her she felt very alone. She says she's not surprised at all by where we're at right now, so while many people are freaking out about Roe being overturned, Shannon says she's hardened to it.
3: Oh, I sleep fine i don't it it doesn't affect my sleep I remember years ago though, when we were doing court things and had to be in and out of court. I remember I used to have a hard time sleeping sometimes that I don't have these hard times sleeping anymore, even though this is about as real as it gets. I had to come to the realization that however this goes, I did my part. And if I know I did my part, my conscience is fine, my, my, you know, everything, I can sleep well because I fought all the way until the end, regardless of who was fighting beside me, I did my part. I'm like, I, you know, I, 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 I did exactly what I said I would do. I stayed here, I told the women I would fight for them, I fought for them. So I sleep well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it
5: is. you
3: see it, yeah, it
6: is. You said that. So, so like just logistics-wise, all the patients that have appointments, mm-hmm. uh, we'll just call them all and cancel them because there's.
2: I looked. in that staff meeting they had two days before the road decision. People were nervous, asking questions about what would happen once it came down.
6: So all those ones that have appointments, maybe those could be transferred somewhere else.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to figure out, I don't even know where they will be transferred at this point with the fact that, you know, many of them are coming here because other places are- Closed yeah. are are down.
7: Are we allowed to transfer? Let them, I mean, refer
3: them? To refer?
2: Yeah. To refer them I I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Shannon didn't know because no one knew. What she did know, what they all knew, was that the decision coming down would mean the end of their jobs at the Pink House, and the end of the Pink House itself. Most importantly, it meant that all the patients who needed them would be stranded. The next closest clinic is three states away, in Illinois. After most of the questions petered out, the youngest member of the staff, Molly, asked a question. She hadn't talked yet, but she'd been sitting in a chair across from Shannon, nodding along as she spoke, Hyper concentrating on Shannon's face as she tried to absorb it all. All
3: right, Christian. Yeah. Uh-huh. How do you feel? About what? Everything. It's, it's overwhelming, really. It's really just overwhelming. I've been so focused on on like the next step, the next step, because my mind—that's how my mind works. It's like it's just not focusing on what is wrong, but rather what is the next step, because that's that's how I—that's the only way I can keep going. To where I didn't really think about like the emotional part of You're it right. until when the doctor started saying, like as they, Dr. Hamlin first on her last day, she was like, you know, and it was she came to me and she was it was kind of sad. She was like, well, I don't know if I'm gonna see y'all again here. Oh, or wow. and I, it it really I was like, what do you mean? It, and it's because it just did not register with me. That's when it really started registering with me because before then, it honestly wasn't not I, like I was telling her today. It probably won't really hit me until the last day that I walk out of here. I've been here 21 years. Wow. Mm. You know, so it's okay. like, wow. It's yeah, your baby. Exactly. So yeah, it's pretty sad, actually.
6: Yeah, it's really yeah. sad.
2: The staff, who in good times is chatty, laughy, was oddly quiet in the room, everyone just looking at Shannon. All these other clinics around the country, under the same threat, were already shutting their doors. Even though the decision hadn't come down yet, they had decided it was over. South Dakota, Oklahoma, those clinics were planning the end. But Shannon was expanding. Shannon had decided that if the state was going to close the Pink House in Jackson, Mississippi, she was going to help open a new Pink House West in New Mexico. It was within driving distance of Mississippi. A long drive, 15 hours, but still. She hoped she could open the doors in that clinic the day the doors in this one closed. At this meeting, she told her staff, I'm going out to get the new clinic ready. You stay here and keep going. I'm, I'm gonna be leaving and I'm be gone tomorrow, so
3: I'm not gonna be here tomorrow, so I was gonna tell y'all this before I go.
2: Keep going until the last possible moment of the last possible day. That's what they've been doing for almost thirty years. That's what they'd keep doing.
3: That's all. I got any other questions.
6: So tomorrow as usual, unless we hear something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything body. is as
3: usual, unless I Unless I'm, I'm, unless I'm calling saying, do this, don't do this anymore, blah, blah, blah. You just do what you normally do. OK. Yep. I just wanted to tell you all that so that everybody have a better understanding. Yep, yep. Thank you. You're welcome, baby. You're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome.
2: All right, let's see. Oh, my goodness. The staff left. Shannon walked back to her office and just sat there. Lordy, lordy, lordy. I've known Shannon for years. We spent hundreds of hours with her. She rarely cracks. She doesn't often show emotion.
8: How did that feel?
3: The talking was fine. It was us was watching their faces. Watching their faces was not as easy. It's like you could see it.
2: I watched his wave after wave of realization hit Shannon in real time.
3: Mm. Girl. This world we live in. It's just amazing what they let people do. (laughs) To certain people. To, to to poor people, to black people, to, you know, people that already been suffering and going through so much all their life. And it's like it's just never ending sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Never ending. Ha, <laughs> the people who do it. <laughs> That's the thing. These are the same people who elect these, the ones who elect these people to do this. You know, these are, these are our neighbors and our, our preachers and our people that are just around us all the time. (laughs) And these are the ones who are electing these people, (laughs) putting these people in these positions to take stuff from us. (laughs) Uh, As if we haven't had enough stuff taken from us all these years, that's crazy. (sighs) I don't wanna talk about this no more. I gotta go outside.
2: Two days later, outside the clinic, Friday, what ended up being the day the Supreme Court handed down the decision. It started off like a normal day. Protesters line the street, screaming at staff, screaming at patients. The protesters today are the same as usual, mostly all men, mostly all white. A man gets up on a ladder with a bullhorn, leans down over the pink stucco wall of the clinic, shouting Bible verses about damnation. The people who manage this scene are called the Pink House Defenders. Their job is to guide patients safely inside the clinic and shield them from the protesters. The protesters scream murderer at patients, and the defenders blast music on speakers to drown them out. They don't want the patients to have to hear all the yelling. Their playlist? Inexplicably 90s alt-rock. Smashing pumpkins, toad the wet sprocket, today it's Tom Petty.
5: Jesus God for
2: the defenders are led by Dorinda Hancock. Hi. She's 63, a wiry blonde who managed restaurants for decades and now waits tables at a chain steakhouse. She'll as quickly yell, go fuck yourself to a protester as she'll whisper, right this way, baby girl, to a patient. For 10 years, she's posted herself outside in front of the pink house. Not for money. All the defenders do it for free. You're welcome. Dorinda's been here since 4.45 a.m. Her usual is 6.45. But the protesters have been starting early this week, and she does not like them to get here before her. Ever. But We'll get you in as soon as you're ready, honey. Okay. Just after 9, the news from the Supreme Court comes down. Dorinda speed walks into the clinic. I need to go, as check as we'll we'll go check on the staff. I'm going to check on the staff shall
3: turn from their wicked ways and pray and seek my faith. Then I will hear from
0: heaven
6: This nation's suit nation. needs to be we have any direction? It's over. Oh,
0: it's
2: over? It's over. They go past the reception desk, down the hallway. A small cluster of staff keeping their voices low. So they don't alarm the patients.
6: I, I messaged Sharon. I'm waiting to hear back what we're supposed to do. I mean, we're not, this is fine. But... Yeah, it went down.
2: Okay,
8: okay. I don't know. They hug. I can't break. Don't okay. break. Stay strong, baby.
9: Stay strong. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I know. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. I
6: oh, know. I can't cry out there. Okay. <sighs> Thank you. I can't be
8: out there like that. There's so much press.
6: Uh,
2: Don't let them see you like that. Someone tells Dorinda. You know I want not <laughs> This is the entire conversation. They give themselves precisely forty-nine seconds for all of it. Then Dorinda heads for the door. She has to get her team together to deal with a crowd of protesters and press. <sighs> Strong Dorinda, someone yells behind her. As the door closes, she turns around and shouts back. Not stronger than you. I
10: need
9: everybody.
5: I need everybody. I need need all my... Down
2: your Protesters are trying to block the driveway to the clinic.
5: Stay
11: out of
5: the
8: fucking driveway! Holiness! Holiness! Oh, the Lord! Our I
2: For a few seconds, as Dorinda slips out the door, the noise from outside pours in, and then the doors close, shoving the world back outside for the staff to figure out what to do now.
7: Oh wow. Oh my god. Yeah.
2: The staff members collect themselves immediately and get back to answering the calls. The phones are backing up, ringing constantly. The lights blinking nonstop on all the office lines.
9: Jake, can we have my help you? No. No, man, we're not doing any more abortion. The decision came out and it's in an effect in 26 states.
2: Women calling, yes, wanting abortions, wanting to know, can you still help me? Can you get me in? Looking for any clinic, still open in the southern half of the country.
9: Jackson, woman, help! Man, we cannot to
3: their appointment.
2: Any staff member who can is grabbing calls.
3: Jackson, woman, health please. Jackson, woman, health please. Okay. Okay. Go ahead.
7: Jackson, woman, help. Can I help you? OK, we're not accepting a new appointment, we are closing. I don't know if you saw the news, we are — they have overtime us. Ain't that crazy? Ain't it? How they gonna tell somebody what to do with, with their body? Yes, ma'am. It, it hurts my soul.
2: Yes, ma'am, call back at 9 yes, All day, people are asking, so if I can't get an abortion in Mississippi, Jackson, what should I do? Jackson, with Health, help, I out here, With Shannon in New Mexico opening Pink House yes. West, her sister Nita takes charge. Chef,
7: help. May I help you?
2: But like everyone else, Nita's answering the phones. Nah, that's going to be a hard
7: decision, you know. It's kind of hard right now to think that it will open, reopen back up, but I don't think it re, re, will reopen back up, sweetheart. I'm so sorry. It, it's sad. It's really sad. It, it's tearing my heart up, trust me. But, um... <laughs>
2: Because people don't know what other people go through, you know what I'm saying?
7: And it really hurts.
2: I know, sweetheart. People ask, if there's no more abortion, what am I supposed to do? One caller asked, can I get my tubes tied?
7: Uh Uh-huh. And you want your tubes tied? I don't know, sweetheart. You have to call the hospital and see, do they tie tubes at certain... You know, you said you have three kids. Now, back in the days, they did that. You had three kids. They'll tell your But I was in Chicago. We don't do that here at the abortion clinic. We don't do that here. But you have to call the hospital for that, sweetheart. Okay. No, ma'am. We don't have no more Plan Bs. You're welcome. Jackson Women's Health? Okay. Okay. Mm.
2: I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. Yeah. This is the sound of row ending. All day long, the phones never let up.
9: Jackson, what's Health? No, ma'am, we's not taking any more new appointments right now. No, ma'am, I do not. The decisions court just came in, so we don't know, ma'am.
2: Jackson, what Health, help? May I help you? Before long, they come up with a new plan. I'll tell you more later in the hour.
9: Oh, we don't. We're not doing any more, ma'am. Tennessee is closed too, ma'am. There's one of them. You're
12: welcome. Just some help, my happy. This is Zoe Chase with Act Two. Welcome to Illinois Abortion Oasis.
9: So what we're about to do, we're going to take this call, and this is probably a person that's requesting for some assistance. By this area code, they're probably calling me from Tennessee, okay? Regional Logistics Center, this is Carolyn. How can I help you?
12: 500 miles away from Jackson, in Fairview Heights, Illinois, there's this big building, a sparkling new abortion complex, a megaclinic made for the post-Roe world. Planned Parenthood decided they needed to build a place where everyone coming from all the other places could go. The Mississippis, the Texases, Oklahoma, Missouri. St. Louis is just across the river. I was there a couple weeks ago. It's 18,000 square feet, a maze of bright hallways and procedure rooms and counseling rooms and the innocuously named but very important Regional Logistics Center. That's where Carolyn Cheryl works.
9: Okay, so are you needing travel assistance and procedure funding? How many total people in your household?
12: Carolyn's job is to get people to this huge clinic for an abortion and connect them to what they need in order to do that, mostly money. She's from St. Louis. She has neon yellow nails that click loudly. She types fast. She's got this little sign up right in her line of vision that says, Stand with Black Women. And that's why she does this job, she says, to help young women like herself. She's warm when you meet her, but on the phone, she has this impersonal customer service voice. There's a lot of forms and information she needs to get through.
9: All right. And your total household monthly income. And what procedure are you choosing, the medical pill or the surgical? The woman on the phone, who is from Tennessee, tells Carolyn she wants a surgical abortion. The total cost of that service is $540. How much do you have towards that balance? She says she only has
12: $100. Carolyn's computer program can instantly tap into abortion funds from all over the country. It'll take $100 from the National Abortion Federation, $75 from the Chicago Abortion Fund, and automatically apply that to the patient's balance. On this call, she also tabs over and squares pop up with the names of all the states. She clicks Tennessee to find the local abortion Um, fund. —
9: I am going to reach out to some funders in your state. Let's see exactly who that will be. You're coming from Tennessee, correct? All right, and what county are you located in? —
12: Last year, Carolyn was working at Planned Parenthood as just an appointment booker. There was no regional logistics center yet. No place which found financial support uh, for travel and stuff. Carolyn's only job was scheduling the appointments, the date and time that people should show up, which was stressful.
9: I used to hang up every day like, what we gonna do? How they gonna make it?
3: What she gonna do?
9: Like, you just, you have those thoughts like, I wonder how she's gonna make it to her appointment. I wonder where she gonna find the rest of that money that we said that she needs. So, yeah, people need support. These young women need somebody to stand up for them. Give them encouragement that they are making the right decision. I mean, you don't, you don't understand the need that comes across this phone.
12: Like this patient who just drove down from Michigan and was there in the waiting room just down the hall. Carolyn got an urgent message about her from the staff at the front desk.
9: All right, give
5: me
12: one second.
5: So, what we can do. The
12: woman is 25 weeks pregnant, right on the line of what is allowed, and had just driven over 500 miles. She'd showed up with $1,500, not nearly enough for that procedure, which is about $5,000, because it's a complicated procedure at that point. It can take two to three days. So, if the woman doesn't get the rest of the money, like right then, her window snaps shut.
9: All right, so we did get you pretty much funded. Pay the $15 that you did, state that you do have, and I'll worry about this for a $100 balance and get this covered for you, Okay? Carolyn hangs up. We could have paid for her hotel, she's saying,
12: shaking her head. Then she'd have that extra $400. Well,
9: we'll get it. So watch. Watch me work.
12: (laughs) I was told this new abortion complex might have to go from eight hours of patient care a day to 10 hours, and then probably 12 Already, one doctor on site sees around nine patients an hour. That's how fast an abortion can be. As little as three minutes, and it's over. They're projecting 14,000 new patients in the next year coming to southern Illinois from nearby states. Which brings me to Act 3, the abortion desert across the river. On June 24th, the day Roe was overturned. I was in St. Louis, Missouri. I drove to meet a Missouri state representative named Mary Elizabeth Coleman. Mary Elizabeth Coleman has been running at abortion for years. She never stops running. Practically the moment she got to the state house, she was helping to write a heartbeat bill. That bill included the trigger ban that ended abortion in the state of Missouri. In the last few months, she's been getting a lot of attention for this strategy that she came up with to attack the megaclinic Planned Parenthood built in Illinois. Mary Elizabeth wrote a bill that would punish people who helped someone in Missouri cross state lines to get an abortion. The bill didn't go anywhere, but it's getting a lot of attention right now. Lots of people are talking about state lines as the next frontier in the fight against abortion. The day Roe fell, Mary Elizabeth told me to meet her at the Cathedral Basilica of St. Louis, closest Catholic church, just down the street to the last abortion clinic in Missouri. Um, what are we doing here?
6: Uh, So I just was praying at the Adoration Chapel here. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, just kind of taking a minute.
12: She's come to this church many times to pray for the end of abortion in their Adoration Chapel, the special place in the church where Catholics believe God is literally present. We were whispering just outside the doorway. Mm -hmm. This moment she'd been working her whole life for felt so heavy.
6: I just feel really, really sad about... All the lives that have been lost, and mourn all of the people who've been harmed, and um, also feel just an incredible sense of gratitude and peace and um, joy that this has been fixed, that this terrible decision has been overcome. And it's an incredible victory for people like me who call ourselves the pro life generation. Like, I was adamant that we would be the, just like adamant as a kid that we'd be the generation that would end row and like it happened and worked and it just feels really overwhelming
12: alongside these feelings she says is worry she's thinking about the response the way people are going to react to what happened what that's going to look like what that's going to feel like The day Roe fell also happened to be the feast day celebrating the birth of St. John the Baptist, the guy known for preparing the way for Jesus and baptizing him in the Bible. It's traditionally celebrated with a bonfire. Mary Elizabeth and 60 of her closest friends gathered at her house that night with her parish priest. Did you light the fire? It was drinks, chips, prayer, s'mores. What a wonderful day. Agreed.
6: I know. I've cried twice today. Have you? Yeah. You're a big crier,
12: too. I am. <laughs> it's not like shouts of victory here. It's more like nudging each other. Can you believe it?
6: Is it real? Is it real? Like, am I going to wake up tomorrow going, it really is real? You know? Like, yeah. I think I will. But, like, right now, I'm just like, it is real. Yeah. It's real. Pinch me. You know? Yeah, it is real. Yeah.
12: You can't overstate what a big day this is for pro life Catholics. This has been a long fight for some of them. And here they were. Reminiscing about how many marches for life they've been on,
0: it just it just makes it worthwhile because those were brutal trips. You're on a bus all night, you know.
10: You get up there, you're exhausted.
0: And thank you for coming out and for being here on this feast of John the Baptist and the Chris, Christ Mary Elizabeth's
12: Baptist, husband, gathers everyone out back.
0: What a glorious day and a beautiful yeah. evening for a fire, Father. It's all yours. And I can't resist having a captive audience (laughs) just to say a quick word.
12: (laughs) St. John the Baptist's story starts with something called the visitation. While she's pregnant, Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, who's also pregnant. Upon seeing Mary, Elizabeth feels her child leap in her womb, recognizing Jesus, the Savior, in Mary's womb. Elizabeth basically says, Mary, your pregnancy is going to turn out great. Mary Elizabeth. This story from the Bible is her namesake.
0: Roe v. Wade is overturned. For which many people, like Mary Elizabeth, have striven so so hard to bring about a culture of life. And as um, that bonfire
12: name... burned out, the night went late. Mary Elizabeth told me she went to bed with this bracing feeling, holding her breath, some relief, but also dread. She said about what happens next.
0: The Lord be with you. With let us pray. O Lord God, Father Almighty, unfailing Great and Source of all Light, sanctify this new fire.
1: Act 4. Next. What happens next is a subject for so many pro-life lawmakers who spent years, like Mary Elizabeth, hoping to get to this point and overturned Roe. By the way, I should say that throughout today's program, we're using the terms uh, for people on each side of this issue that they choose themselves, like pro-life. I've talked to a few of these pro-life lawmakers about what's going to happen next, and opinions really are all over the place. There's no consensus on how to proceed, just a general sense that the courts and Supreme Court seem to be on their side, and so there's no telling how far they're going to be able to go right now. Like, for example, here's one of the biggest questions out there that uh, lawmakers in the movement do not agree on. The question is, should states that ban abortion try to do anything about all the people who are going to cross state lines to get abortions in clinics like the one in Illinois that Zoe visited? What can they do? The um, Thomas More Society, this conservative nonprofit, has put together model legislation on this. They're one of a handful of outfits throwing out legal strategies
10: right now. Peter Breen is their vice
1: president and senior counsel.
10: Well, if you frame the question as trying to stop someone from cross a state line, your natural instinct might be, oh, well, I don't think you can do that. But when you frame the question in the way that the Dobbs Supreme Court majority framed it, which is, this is an unborn human child, well, then the question looks a lot different. And the unborn child is now a resident and can be treated as a resident of their home state. And when you look at it that way, the state's interest in protecting a minor who is a resident of that state, you can't just take the minor across state lines to do something illegal to that minor That would be a grave crime. It is something that in other contexts, such as sex trafficking or child abuse, no one would challenge that that home state has jurisdiction to to protect that child.
1: Would the courts agree with him? That is totally unclear. It raises complicated legal questions, and other pro-life legislators and legal thinkers do not think this is a slam dunk at all. But strategists are floating all sorts of ideas like this right now, and nobody knows which of those laws are going to hold up in court. And in the coming months and years, we're going to be seeing all kinds of state laws using all kinds of tactics, like these, to try to crack down on abortion. I was interested to talk to somebody in the movement who was sorting through those ideas, trying to figure out what might work best right now, to hear how they're weighing the pros and cons of various approaches. And I went to one of the most forward-looking, John Segoe, president of Texas Right to Life, Last year, Texas jumped to the front of the legal battle over abortion in our country when it passed the so-called Heartbeat Act, SB-8. That's the law that said that anyone in Texas, any private individual, could sue anybody who performs an abortion or anybody who even just helps someone get an abortion, starting around six weeks after gestation. SIGO helped shepherd that bill to passage. It's been widely imitated across the country. Siegel has been talking lately to legislators and thinking a lot about what they should do next. And for starters... He's somebody who does not think they should try to stop women from crossing state lines to get abortions.
0: I'm not confident that's you know, actually going to work as far as legislation. You can't outlaw aiding and abetting an activity in another state. And I'm sure that there is language out there that may be offered this session to get around some of that. But at this moment, I don't think that that's going to be the best use of our of our efforts right now
1: are you saying that, that you think actually like just from a practical point of view it might be that the movement might have to live with the fact that some women are going to cross state lines and and there might be nothing that a state can do to stop that
0: I mean this is a reality of federalism and, and I don't think that that's going to be the best use of our of our efforts right now
1: that means Sico says not going after somebody who crosses state lines for an abortion or people or organizations who help them do it. Or advertising that lets people know about abortion clinics in other states. Instead, John Sego says the movement in his state, Texas, should be focusing on making Texas a more hospitable place to keep and raise a baby, with more support from others. This is um, something I heard from other pro-life politicians around the country. Sego says another thing they have to do, now that abortion is banned in so many states, they have to make sure the bans are enforced.
0: You know, the movement is unified, that we need to fully enforce our laws. We have serious problems with that here in Texas, with district attorneys saying they don't want to enforce our laws, even now with with Roe v. Wade being overturned.
1: What he's talking about is district attorneys in Texas counties that contain Dallas and Austin and San Antonio and Corpus Christi, also Fort Bend County on the outskirts of Houston. All these district attorneys joining over 80 prosecutors around the country and saying they will not prosecute doctors who continue to do abortions.
0: And so um, that's kind of one of the hurdles of how do we look at actually prosecuting that? Well, there's a couple of different public policy responses.
1: For instance, they could authorize the Texas attorney general to prosecute those cases. Or have DAs from nearby counties do it. But the best solution, Seger thinks, is to beef up what they did in the Texas abortion law and give private citizens more power to sue any doctor who they think is still performing abortions. This, by the way, is also the approach recommended by the National Right to Life Committee. That's the national group that Texas Right to Life is affiliated with. They've drafted model legislation for states to adopt that would make it possible to prosecute anybody helping someone get an abortion in a state that's banned it. By authorizing attorneys general to prosecute if local district attorneys don't want to do it. And by giving citizens the power to sue anybody they think is breaking the law. Specifically, the draft legislation will give the father and the grandparents of the unborn child the ability to sue for compensatory and punitive damages if there's an illegal abortion. And if the pregnancy was caused by rape or incest, the father of the unborn child would not be able to sue for damages. But the way the draft law is written, his parents could. So the other big thing I wanted to talk to you about is pills. This is the other way that it seems like women in states that have banned abortion might still be able to get abortions. Right now, more than half of all the abortions in the United States are induced by pills. The FDA has approved these medications for use up to 10 weeks of pregnancy. And the states that have banned surgical abortions have also made it illegal for a woman to go online and just order these pills from a website. But as a practical matter, it seems very hard to enforce. Like these websites are often overseas. It would be, just be very difficult for a state like Texas or any other state to kind of reach overseas and do anything to, to, to the people who set up those websites. What can be done there? Like where do you see opportunities for state legislators? Where do you see the limits of it?
0: Yeah. I mean, this is another question of enforcement. So that activity of Um, mailing abortion-inducing drugs is illegal in Texas. And uh, so we're we're definitely looking at how can we enforce the law where we're looking to tools that are not typically used. And so, you know, how is this getting to Texans? Well, it's getting to them through the internet. It's getting uh, through, you know, their internet providers or through their cell phone providers. And so, um, you know, are they breaking any federal laws? Are they breaking any state laws?
1: But he says, they're still figuring all this out. It's really not clear what's going to work. One promising option, he says, is to give the Texas attorney general more power to prosecute companies overseas that are sending these abortion pills into Texas, and to make it possible for private citizens to sue them as well, which, he hopes, would drag those companies into court in Texas to slow them down or stop them. I know it's always been a bright line for everybody trying to stop abortion in this country that they don't want to punish a pregnant woman who gets an abortion or wants an abortion. But when it comes to these websites, it seems like really like that's the person who's choosing to make the abortion happen more than anybody else. Do you hear talk of anyone saying, "Well, let's 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 stop the woman in some way from doing that or penalize the woman?"
0: Yes, I mean there there is um a minority in the pro-life movement that they are focused on, you know, wanting to criminalize the woman seeking an abortion. Um, that that's a minority, but that is a loud minority, and unfortunately, um, you know, they're continuing to continuing to talk about that. Um, we don't believe that that's the best priority for us. We don't think that that's really, you know, the the best way that we can move forward. Um, we think that after you know fifty years of the messaging from the media, the messaging from Unfortunately, our, our highest court of the land that this is a constitutional right and this is something that's necessary for her success, we don't think that it's just to immediately turn around and to criminalize this activity just because the woman has believed what uh, the media and what the Supreme Court has told her for 50 years.
1: So, in the long run, Sigu says that he wants to end abortion in every state. He says, if you really believe that life begins at conception, you have an obligation to try to stop abortion everywhere. But in the short run, in the next legislative session in Texas, his goal is to pass laws that will help enforce the abortion ban in their state and go after abortion pills and whoever is sending them into Texas somehow.
4: I'm reporter Rebecca Grant, and this is Act 5, The Pill Smuggler.
8: I think I seem like a little nice old lady. I walk my dog, and I'm a neighborhood kind of person.
4: Do you think that you're able to do your legally risky work more safely because you come off as a nice little old lady?
8: Absolutely. Who else could do this but a a nice little old lady that no one's going to pay any attention to? You know, who else can get away with this? This is
4: Stephanie. Stephanie is in her 60s. She's a white lady, lives in a southern red state, and what she's getting away with is this. She gets shipments of abortion pills from Mexico and India. Then she mails them out to people who can't get an abortion at a clinic. There's no prescription involved, no doctors or nurses. The people who get the packages will take the pills and do their abortion at home. The lingo for this is self-managed abortion. Stephanie, by the way, is not her real name. And this is not her real voice. We had an actor copy what she said as closely as possible to protect her identity. Stephanie runs this underground operation out of her bedroom. When she gets a new shipment of pills, she puts on a pair of latex gloves, spreads out all her supplies on top of her king-size bed, and divvies them up into little plastic baggies while she watches MSNBC. She loves Rachel Maddow.
8: So this is what it looks like. Sometimes it's a little bit thicker. And if you feel it, it's incredibly light. And I'll open it so you can see what's inside. Anyway, this is it. She showed me some of the pills. So the big pill is our new exciting pill. This in is the last ID. shipment, she
4: received 50 mifepristone pills,
8: MIFIs. And this is MISO. And, and
4: over 1,000 misoprostol pills, MISOs. If all these pills were getting prescribed in the clinic, it would add up to about $30,000. She has generic versions. They're just as safe and effective.
8: Um, and MISO is like a wonder drug. It's just considered exceptionally effective and very safe. Stephanie has sent
4: pills to hundreds of people. She fields requests through an encrypted email address. To send the pills, she stuffs them into bubble mailers from the dollar store, along with a QR code that links to information about how to use them and the medical risks, which are few. Then, by hand, she writes out a random return address so that the package can never be traced back to her. She holds up a package to show me and my producer, Aviva.
8: Um, I usually go through uh, houses for sale and put down an address of a house for sale somewhere in my area of the world.
12: Are you just on Zillow or something? How are
8: you finding uh those houses? Yeah, uh and I try to do different um, towns all over our area so that always comes from different towns.
4: Stephanie, to be clear, is not a medical professional, and she's definitely not supposed to be distributing medication though she has no idea what the punishment would be if she got caught.
8: You know, is it a slap on the wrist? Is it a misdemeanor? Is it a felony? How bad is it? And there are no clear-cut answers from the Lord. Is that
4: because nobody has been, in a meaningful way, prosecuted for that type of thing? So it's just sort of like untraveled territory? I
8: think so. Like. Bringing miso across the border, is that legal or illegal? What if someone's bringing it in huge, huge quantities to provide all over the U.S.? Do you think that will lead to prosecution? And the answer was, we haven't seen that yet. So until, you know, they start prosecuting people for it, 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 it's all uncharted territory. No one really knows what risk they're taking, I don't think.
4: Stephanie technically retired a few years ago, but she's one of those people who can't sit still. She describes herself as a doer. And so she started working with this nonprofit that helps people access abortions. And she felt relieved every time she could help a client MacGyver away around the obstacles. But sometimes there are obstacles that couldn't be overcome, at least not without moving mountains. And Stephanie realized that sending people pills to take it home was a solution. This way, they wouldn't have to come up with the money or figure out childcare, or travel hundreds of miles to a clinic. And unlike the websites that sell these pills, they wouldn't need a credit card. It could really help people without an ID or a bank account or who were running out of time. So she decided to build out a shadow arm of her operation, all underground. When the nonprofit can't figure out another way to help someone, they give them Stephanie's encrypted email. There are actually people all over the country who do what Stephanie does, but no one really talks about it. Even with each other.
8: It's very self contained, like in the old days, the Soviet cells where you'd have the knowledge held by just a few. And if, you know, I don't think I would ever be tortured for this information, but no one can tell who, what, how it's happening if no one knows.
4: Stephanie is obsessive about covering her tracks, but she can't control everything. Like this one time at the post office, she goes there every day to pick up the above board mail for her nonprofit. All the bills, the donations, that kind of thing. But a couple years ago, somebody sent a package of abortion pills there that was meant for the shadow side. Stephanie assumed no one at the post office would notice or care.
8: They know me. They know my family. We all know everyone in the community. They let me know when I have packages. They text me or call me when I have a package. So one day, I was actually transporting a client from a clinic to their home and i had just dropped them off and i think i was in a parking lot just waiting for you know the next thing and my phone rang and it was the post office lady who calls frequently and i said okay hi you know post office lady what's up and she said i need to talk to you i need you to come in right now and i said i can't come in town and she's furious and just upset and she said do you know Jane And I said, Jane? I don't know Jane. And she said, well, something was sent into your post office box and this person's name. And I opened it, and it has some illegal things in it. And I called the police, and they're here, and they want to open a case, and I want you to talk to them. So the police got on the speakerphone and said, um, do you know Jane? And I said, no, I have no idea who Jane is. Did you know who Jane was? Yes, of course I knew who Jane was. And who was Jane? Jane was one of my aliases.
4: Stephanie tried to stay calm on the phone, but inside, she was freaking out. She's not really sure why, but the case didn't end up going anywhere. Maybe it was because her name wasn't on the package. After that, Stephanie made sure she never got abortion pills at that post office. But she still gets all her legal, boring, non-profit mail there. And she knows the same clerk is going to handle it.
8: I take great pleasure about sending things to her that are labeled abortion. Why? I don't know. I guess it's petty. Uh, But I just want her, whatever her individual feelings are, to have to receive our abortion mail every day and hand it over to me. And every day I go in there with a big smile on my face and say, I'm here to pick up my mail.
4: Stephanie knows that a crackdown on self-managed medication abortion is coming. And she worries that someone could try to prosecute her for aiding and abetting an abortion, even for being an accessory to murder. But Stephanie's hopeful that those kinds of laws will be difficult to actually enforce. There are just too many people sending too many pills and nondescript envelopes through the mail. It would be impossible to intercept everyone.
8: There's no way to limit it. Yeah, no, it's available. It's widely available. Um, If there's a need, there'll be a way to get it if people know where to go. We just need to get the word out.
4: Stephanie's optimistic, but she still prepares for the worst. Every day she wakes up early. She showers, does her hair and makeup, and gets dressed so she's presentable, just in case the police show up to arrest her.
1: Coming up, scrambling to get ready for all the babies that are coming. Now that Roe is gone, that's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. This is American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program... The Pink House at the Center of the World. If you're just tuning in, we began today at the Mississippi Clinic that was in the middle of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And then from there, we headed out to other places shaken by this seismic change in our country. So far, we've been to Illinois, Missouri, Texas. And in this part of our show, we now head back to the state we started.
11: I'm Emma Green. This is Act 6, The Babies. Babies are coming. No one knows exactly how many. Thousands, tens of thousands. The pro-life movement has spent so long trying to get these babies here to make abortion illegal, unthinkable. And now the movement has declared its next mission. They have to take care of these women. They have to take care of these babies. In Mississippi, Anya Baker is the woman running point on all these babies. She's this super intense 27-year-old who's been fully dedicated to the pro-life movement since she was 15. Her dad's white. Her mom's Mexican-American. She's a Catholic convert. On her left shoulder, she's got a tattoo of a giant white rose, a tribute to a German woman who resisted the Nazis. On the top of her right foot, she's got another tattoo of these tiny little footprints, the size of a 22-week-old, about the youngest age a baby can survive being born.
13: A lot of times, it kind of like freaks people out because <laughs> that's yeah. not what they were expecting. And so, like when people are like, "Oh yeah, it's my tattoo," you know, I remember talk ran, run into a girl who was like, "Oh yeah, I've got a tattoo in the same spot." And she was like, "What are your tattoos about?" And I basically was like, "You know, abortion and Holocaust." And she was like, "Mine's a butterfly. Uh, I like butterflies." <laughs> so my tattoos have no chill, you know, basically. <laughs>
11: I met up with Anya in Jackson. She took me on a tour of the post-Roe world that she hopes to build. So, Anya, we'll meet you over there. Anya works for a national pro-life group called Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. More than any other organization, they can take credit for this moment, for the careful political strategy that led to Roe falling. And now, they want to help all these babies. But they're not quite ready. For example, Anya's job is to create this online directory for Mississippi, a website of every kind of resource a new mom and baby might need, everything from diapers and formula to addiction treatment and housing help. She doesn't include anyone—therapists, OBGYNs, any organization—who might help a woman get an abortion. I followed Anya around just four days before Roe got overturned, and her directory was still a draft. The goal, eventually, is to have a version of this in all 50 states. Right now, two are live.
13: I'm assuming he's in here. This is the resource center. Looks like they're sorting donations there.
11: The first Obviously, stop on our tour was a church that was stockpiling donated baby put, stuff.
10: You put uh, crib mattresses up top. You can see the pack-and-plays there. There's two of those. And then the shelf right over, there's two strollers, I believe. And then there's some bed rails Next,
11: we visited these two pro-life activists in Jackson who brainstormed with Anya how to get more churches activated to join Anya's mission, to do more practical stuff to help women. One of them, Monica, mentioned she's one of the few black women who protests outside the Pink House, the abortion clinic in Jackson. Anya's excited to talk to Monica, in part because she wants the pro-life movement to reach more black women.
13: Do you envision this at black churches? like, predominantly Black, not just, like, the diverse churches. And if you do, you know, like, how do you— is
11: anyone coming to mind? Like, are you getting ideas?
9: I am. I am (laughs) over here, like—
11: Anya is a fix-it kind of gal. And to her, the task ahead seemed straightforward. There were 3,559 abortions in Mississippi in 2020. She interprets this like a lot of other pro-lifers do, that the only reason these abortions happened was because women felt powerless like they had no other option. So often
13: a different decision would be made that felt more empowering to her if she had information, resources, knowledge, emotional support. And I think, okay, there's an equation here. There's a woman who didn't expect to be pregnant but technically does want to stay pregnant, but this is missing. This meaning some practical resource. Which could equal life. And so I thought,
11: okay, so I can help with that gap. Did you ever spend time thinking about the other scenario, which is like the woman who doesn't technically want to stay pregnant?
13: Yeah. But I find so often with the women who did not want to be pregnant, a lot of times it still comes down to an idea that she has about what it means for her. Um, Like, does she will lose her scholarship, that she will lose her job, that she will not be be able to ask for leave, that she will be kicked out of her parents' house, like fill in the blank. Um, A lot of the time it's still that, even if the idea of pregnancy doesn't like excite her, it wasn't something she was like really looking forward to anytime soon.
11: Anya is the kind of person who was looking forward to having kids. But even then, the reality of it has been complicated. She's a youngish mom with two sons, a toddler and a 14-month-old with special needs. Her younger son, Herschel, needs to be nursed every four hours and can't sit up on his own. So anytime Anya has to travel for work, like today, she needs to bring along a whole entourage of caretakers. Over the course of the day, we meet a babysitter, Katie, Anya's mom, Cecilia and her husband, Nate, of- who holds Hershey and pats him on the back as we head from one meeting to the next.
5: I yeah, got the support team here.
13: She comes after, two. He does rocking when it gets out of hand. I do the nursing. Then, medicine prep. Medicine prep, yeah.
11: We did the medicine early this morning,
13: Yeah, yeah, okay, well, let's go.
11: Nate follows in his white Jetta with Hershey as we drive an hour and a half out to Meridian, Mississippi, to a place called the Center for Pregnancy Choices.
13: Hello, precious
11: It's a pregnancy help center, or what's often called a crisis pregnancy center. These places where women can get ultrasounds and diapers and moral support. The pro-life world has had these for decades, in part to try and convince women not to have abortions. These are places where Jesus looms large. It's not like they're government agencies. But lately, state legislatures, like the one in Mississippi are doling out millions of dollars to these centers. This is the safety net they're imagining for women who are pregnant,
13: so there's a poster in the bathroom um, that says, "Are you safe at home?" Has anyone in your home ever used words or actions to make you feel unsafe? Do you have any a
11: bubbly white woman named Sarah shows us closets full of baby gear and flyers for women interested in getting their GED. And she takes us down the hall to a room with a blue sofa, where women can come and talk about what they're dealing with. So
13: this is that safe space I was telling you about. And these are preggy pops. So if you decide to eat a candy, it'll help you with nausea. Mm -hmm.
11: Visiting all of these places, it struck me how big this task will be, how big the need is. The women giving birth in Mississippi tend to be poor. The state is the worst in the country when it comes to infant mortality and child poverty. Anya is not daunted by this. We talked about it in the car. Do you ever feel like you're asking too much of women? Explain.
5: Like,
11: I guess a thing that I'm stuck on is, it feels different to be like, this is hard when it's something that you wanted versus something you didn't want. Like, in the post-Roe world, there are going to be women who are having babies who before would have chosen abortion and going through all of those really hard things also. And it just, I don't know, it feels like it adds this layer that is just so heart-wrenching. And I guess I wonder what you would say to them.
13: I really think that that is how life is. Whether it's a pregnancy or somebody you love cheating on you or losing a job or um, your parent dying early. Like these are all, like I could go on, but like these are things that happen to you that are immeasurably hard that if anybody could choose for it to not happen to them, they would. If they could time it differently, they would. Um, But these are things that happen and people do get pregnant. And um, once there is a pregnancy, there is a life. so that life cannot be justified to be ended, period.
11: When Anya imagines this new world, the world after Roe, it seems so clear to her. The need will be met. People will rise to the occasion. With enough phone calls and texts and emails and volunteer hours, she can fix anything. The babies are coming and they'll be ready.
1: 7. Back to Jackson. So we end our show today by returning to the clinic that was the plaintiff in the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade, the Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi. If you remember uh, from the beginning of our show, the day of the Supreme Court decision, they were overwhelmed with phone calls, people hearing the news and wanting to schedule abortions. And at first, they were turning people away. But the way Mississippi law works The ban on abortion in the state wouldn't begin for at least another 10 days, which meant they had at least 10 days when they'd still be open and could perform abortions. Macy Crow picks up the story from there.
2: The day Roe was overturned, remember Shannon, the director, was in New Mexico trying to open the new clinic, Pink House West, and her sister Nita was running things in Mississippi. Around 10 in the morning, they get on the phone with Shannon. Shannon tells them, We have a month of appointments booked right now. I want you to call every one of those patients who are scheduled and get them all to come in during the next 10 days.
3: Those are the ones that I want y'all to And tell them what? Tell them that that this thing just went down. They're not going to be open that way.
2: Maybe they couldn't make any new appointments, but they could honor the ones they had. See if they come in tomorrow.
7: The they're not going to be open — OK, OK, your first week of July. OK, OK, we got it. Yes, ma'am. I
3: mean, yes sir. You OK, we fill you it know. up. Right you you it OK. tell me that, that you know, schedule 30 and
2: 30. They decide they'll stay open for extra hours, and they'll come in on days they're usually closed.
7: Um, can Molly and Stephanie come in? Because they was off tomorrow. She can y'all come in tomorrow. tomorrow? i come in. Oh, Molly
2: said she'll come in tomorrow, please. Oh. And then the phone, everyone please. gets back on the phones, calls everyone with appointments on the books and asks, can you come in sooner? How about tomorrow? How about Sunday?
8: 12
7: and 2?
6: 12. 12 and 2. OK, so we got a whole day
2: tomorrow.
7: Basically. A whole day. Keep things keep going,
2: going yeah.
3: But we're
7: going By the going
2: end of the day, they'd rearranged more things, called in other doctors, and even found a way to start booking new patients again, too. Yeah.
8: This should be fun. Yeah.
2: <laughs> for the pink house, which had for so long been unclosable, this is what closing looks like a fight.
3: When you check out, the receptionist is going to give you this slip of paper. It's your appointment reminder slip. It has your return date, return time, how much you owe your doctor's going to be.
2: For the rest of the day, patients are shown into treatment rooms as usual. A doctor does the counseling session the state mandates with patients who come in for an abortion.
7: Morning, ladies.
0: Glad you guys got in here okay. Um, and I know you guys are here for an abortion. State wants me to scare you guys and tell you there's a risk of breast cancer related to abortion. There isn't, so now I've told you, you can forget it. <laughs> so there's 24 hour law in Mississippi in terms of waiting, I can't offer you anything today. I guess you're aware Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, so this clinic will be closing down very shortly. I can take care of you guys tomorrow So if you're having the pill treatment, do not waste any time, come back tomorrow, okay? If you need surgery, check with the front desk, they'll tell you what your options are, okay? Any questions, ladies?
1: of When My Morning Comes Around, which you recorded for us. Our program was produced today by Zoe Chase and Elise Spiegel and edited by Gloria Stierczewski. People who put together today's show include Jane Ackerman, Eleanor Baker, Sean Cole, Michael Comete, Andrea Lopez-Cruzado, Aviva de Kornfeld, Hannah Jaffe, Walt, Kyla Jones, Seth Wynn, Tobin Lowe, Miki Meek, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Louisa Ship, Lily Sullivan, Jessica Soriano, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Weir, our managing editor, Sara Abdurrahman, our senior editor is David Kestenbaum, our executive editor is Emmanuel Barry. Movie legend Carol Kane agreed to be the voice of our pill smuggler in Act 5 today. Macy Crow's movie about abortion in Mississippi, which follows The Pink House and Shannon Brewer, is called Jackson. You can find it on HBO Max. Special thanks today to Mary Zeger, Becky Curry, Andy Gibson, Clark Forsyth, Elizabeth Nash, Diane Derzis, Javon Brewer, Anna Wolf, Larison Campbell, Julie Lynn, Colleen McNichols, Laquetta Cooper, Kwana Shannon, Califasana, Jason Rosenbaum, Prisca Neely, Mallory Carroll, Elisa Wells, Jill E. Adams, Pam Whitehead, Corey Weiner, the National Abortion Federation Hotline, and Will Davis. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can find a link to the full Nikki Lane song you're hearing right now. Also, you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. There's videos, lists of favorite shows, tons of other stuff there, too. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he has squirrels at his house, in his garden, front yard. Doesn't like them. It's kind of intense about it.
5: Stay out of the fucking driveway!
1: I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.